The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want us to go back to the account that we were in this morning in the book of Mark. I had intentions of going elsewhere, but uh, I just believe the Lord would have us to go back to this little outcast woman who didn't have a chance. She, she was from the wrong side of the tracks. Mark chapter 7 tells us that she lived in a place that the Jews looked down upon, Tyre and Sidon. She wasn't even a Jew. She was not even a part Jew. She was Greek, we're told. We said this morning she was a Syrophoenician by nation. The Syrophoenicians, the Phoenicians themselves, or where the Philistines, they were part of, that's what the Philistines were, the Phoenicians. They were uh, the sworn enemies throughout the history of the nation of Israel to this time. The Phoenicians also, by the way, were the founders of Carthage. I said that this morning. Carthage was the sworn enemy of Rome in the centuries leading up to the time we're at right now. This was a woman who had nothing offer. She had no rights to the Lord. She had no religion to uh, help her. She was outcast. She didn't have a chance. We talked about that this morning, how that she brought her petition before the Lord. She had a daughter that was incurably ill. In fact, she didn't just have a sickness, she had a devil. That You know, sometimes I'm not saying there aren't still devils that afflict God's children today, but, but in that day they really did. And, and that meant that she wasn't just passively ill. She wasn't just slowly being uh, degenerated by some cancer or diabetes or, or Parkinson's or some other illness, whatever you want to name. There was an active enemy in her body. The devil, a devil, was after her, and she was incurably ill. And this outcast Gentile, Greek, Phoenician woman came to Jesus. And we saw this morning where that she cried after him. Uh, and this, the same word there used that a crow calling is, is used to describe a crow calling. And you know how, you, I don't know if, you, if you've listened to a crow lately, but... It's a very grating sound. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard. She went to Jesus. She went to him because she had heard of him. We said this morning, that's, you know, nobody's going to go to Jesus if they hadn't heard of him. Uh, now, we're not talking about the new birth. We've already, I hope you understand that if you're here tonight, uh, that the new birth is something that we don't go to Jesus to get. In fact, until you're born again, you don't cry after Jesus no more than a baby cries until it's born. Now, why does a baby cry? Not in order to get born, but because it's been born. <laughs> and then the baby knows it needs something, but it doesn't really even then know what it needs. But, but just kind of like that, as a, a child of God who's born again knows he needs something, but doesn't really even know what he needs. And that's our job as a church to fill that void. Just like it's the parent's job to provide the milk 
that that little baby needs when it's born. It's the church's job. It's your job, child of God. If you're a mature child of God who understands the grace of God, it's your job and my job to supply the information to that little newborn crying child of God who doesn't really know what he needs. But she'd heard about Jesus. She knew about, she came to him because she had heard about him. And then he does something really strange. And we talked about that to a great extent this morning. In fact, that's what kept us from finishing this morning. <laughs> we got to talking about the fact that Jesus' earthly ministry was primarily not to the Gentiles. It was primarily to his countrymen, his, his brothers and sisters, according to the flesh, the Jews. We, we don't... What I intended to do tonight was to go back to Daniel chapter 9 and really go into detail about those 70 weeks. But let me just rehash it quickly and sum it up like this. When Jesus said it is finished in John chapter 19 and verse 30, He meant it. He meant it. What you read about in Daniel chapter 9 is 70 weeks that are really 70 weeks of years, which is 490 years. And if our calendars could be accurate, which they're not. Our current calendars are not accurate enough for us to tell the exact dates. But if they were, we could tell you the exact date that Jesus came and his ministry started. He was, he was here on this earth. They could tell in that day. But our, our calendars are off by five to six years, something in that range. But just suffice it to say that Daniel tells us that, that when the Messiah comes at the end of 69 Weeks, which is 483 years. When he comes, it says he will confirm the covenant with many for one week. A week, which is seven years. So that makes up the rest of the 490 years. And it says in the midst of that week, the Messiah will be cut off, the, the sacrifice and the oblation will cease. And guess what? If you go to the book of John and you do the calculations looking at the yearly, bank, the yearly feasts that Jesus attended, you're going to find that his ministry was right at three and a half years. Right in the middle of the seven years, right? You know, some people tell us today that the last week, that 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks has not happened yet. They say there's 69 weeks and then there's an, there's an interregnum, if you will, of about 2,000 years until he is going to come back and then you'll have that seven. You know, I'm glad there was no break in the three days and three nights that Jesus was to stay in the grave, aren't you? What, what, if, what if the three days and three nights didn't really mean three consecutive days and nights? It meant, well, two days, but he's really still in the grave, but one day he's going to rise again. <laughs> Wouldn't you hate to serve a soon-to-rise Savior? I'd hate to, I'd hate to, I'd hate to be serving that. I, Brother Joe Holder uh, is one of the first ones I ever heard preach on this topic, and he said, I don't want to serve a one-day-he'll-rise Savior. I serve a he-rose Savior, a risen Savior, you yeah. see. But anyway, be that as it may, that 70th week, right in the middle of it, Jesus died and was crucified. And, and, then, and then what happened about three and a half years later, according to our timelines, according to historians, there was a man named Saul on the road to Damascus who was struck down by a blinding light and who was converted to the truth, was born again there, converted to the truth, and became, as by his own testimony, the apostle to the Gentiles. Isn't that something? So, so look at what's happened in those, in those seven years, beginning with the public ministry of Jesus. Three and a half years into it, he's crucified. 
And they, his disciples continued to preach and to confirm the covenant with Israel, to preach primarily to the nation of Israel, primarily to the Jews. And then at the end of that seven years, at the end of that 70th week, guess what? The apostle to the Gentiles sets off on his ministry. You see, you see how beautiful the, the, the Word of God works when you just let it be simple and say what it, what it means and not try to complicate it with spiritualizing and and my goodness, I, I, that's one of the reasons I believe that, uh, that we're living today in the, in the kingdom of God, the visible aspect of which is the church, but we're living in the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom within us. Jesus is serving, sitting on the throne of his glory right now. He is ruling and reigning over that kingdom. And, and praise God, the end times aren't complicated. What's going to happen is, guess what? Jesus is coming back and we're going home. <laughs> That's pretty simple, isn't it? Praise God. I love that simplicity. But the point of all that for our story and our purposes is that this woman came to Jesus who was a Gentile and said, I need you to help me. And he caught, she said, thou son of David, please help me. You look back in Matthew chapter 15, it'll tell you that she used that term for Jesus. And then Jesus does something strange. And, and, and we had kind of started talking about that this morning, how that he said, let the children first be filled, for it's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it under the dogs. If you go back to Matthew, the 15th chapter, he elaborates a little more on that. In verse 23, it says, after she cried out to him, but he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away, for she crieth after us. That's that word, crowge, that's, uh, that sounds like a, a, a crow calling, and, and it's just a shriek, almost. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then, you know, the rest of the story, he, he goes on to explain to her, it's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, he, it seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Knowing what we know about Jesus, that he would be putting her off like that. But remember what we said this morning and remember what Jesus said here. Jesus did not say the children only. He just said children first. My ministry right now is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The children need to first be filled. But praise God, if there are first, if there's a first course meal, that means there's a second course meal. <laughs> That's glorious, isn't it? There, the, he didn't say children first, uh, children only. He said children first. And so uh, what, what he does then, it, it looks like she doesn't have a chance, but I want you to notice her persistence here. She, she comes to him. She comes to him at a time when his primary ministry, earthly ministry, is not to her people. Now, now don't misunderstand. That does not mean that his, his goal, his ultimate sacrifice here does not cover those outside of the nation of Israel. There is a people of God in every kindred, in every tribe, every tongue, and every people. Everywhere you go, there are children of God throughout this world. There always have been. And his ultimate destination was Calvary's Hill where he would die for every single one of his children, Jew, Gentile, black, white, doesn't matter, rich or poor, he's dying for his children and he's going to bring them all home, you see. He's going to pay their sin debt. In fact, all the things that Daniel talked about in, his, in the ninth chapter of Daniel about uh, about the verse 24 that had to be done in those 70 weeks of years will be done. Uh, to finish the transgression, put an end to sins. 
All those things. He was going to do that. But the ministry he had at that time, and you know, God had dealt primarily with the Jews throughout all the Old Testament days, right? There, Every once in a while, you run into a little harlot like Rahab. You run into some, some uh, general like Naaman the Syrian. You run into a few people out there that... Uh, a widow that, that, that was about to die because she was about to starve to death. You run into a few people outside the nation of Israel, but primarily everything to this point had been focused upon Israel. Not eternal salvation, don't get me wrong. God had always had a people everywhere throughout, every, throughout the whole world, but the people that served Him properly, the people that knew the truth of His oracles were primarily the Jews. And at this point... That was primarily his, his ministry. So, so notice that she faced some obstacles in reaching this blessing that she so desperately desired. I've already talked a little bit about it. She, she faced the obstacle of race. Race. We hear a lot about race and racial tensions today, don't we? We hear a lot of people that have a bad, wrong Perception of what race is and what it means. You know what race is in the sight of God? The human race. That's right. There's no other race. He said He hath made of one blood all peoples, every single one. But I tell you, beloved, God doesn't see race. As I said, we're all the human race. But here, it was a problem even back then. Race was an obstacle to her. As I told you already, she was from Tyre and Sidon. She wasn't Jewish. She wasn't a Semitic, of the Semitic people. She was a Gentile. She wasn't of the descendants of Shem, which is what the Semitic peoples are. She was a descendant of Japheth. She wasn't part of the clique. She wasn't with the in crowd. She was from the wrong side of the tracks. She was a Canaanite. She was a Greek. She had two or three strikes against her already. She faced the obstacle of religion. I've already told you, she, she wasn't a Jew. She wasn't worshiping properly. I don't know if she was a pagan worshiper. I don't know if she actually, if she actually, you know, herself participated in worshiping the gods of Rome or of Greece. I, I don't, or the ancient Near East. I don't know if she was an ISIS follower or what, you know. Um, but I'll tell you this, she wasn't a Jew. And she wasn't properly worshiping the Lord. She wasn't properly worshiping Him. And they knew that. Her disciples didn't like it one bit. Lord, send her away. Send her away. She's, she's not one of us. Send her away. She faced rejection. Jesus seemingly ignored her. And the disciples rebuffed her. <laughs> But you know, the Bible says much about humility and persistence. Not about pride and persistence. <laughs> That'll get you nowhere. But humility and persistence. You remember the, in Luke, you don't have to turn there because we don't have time. In Luke, the 18th chapter, he tells a parable about a, a widow woman who had a petition to take before this judge who was an unjust judge. He didn't have any fear of God or men. He, had no, he didn't care what was right or wrong. 
But the little widow lady kept coming back and coming back and over and over petitioning him. And so what happened? He finally granted her what she asked. And, and, and you know what he goes on to say there? He says, now, if this unjust judge will grant this woman's petition just because she keeps worrying him to death, how much more do you think your heavenly father will grant your petitions who loves you and is trying, is always going to do the right thing and always going to do right in every situation because he's righteous. How much more is he going to listen to you? The Bible says much about humility and persistence and praise God what she has met here is not another Jewish rabbi who had no interest in her situation because she wasn't of his people. She has come upon the Savior, the Christ himself, who is so full of compassion that we ought not be one bit surprised about what he ultimately does here. You know, we saw that situation a few, a few chapters back where Jairus comes to Jesus and and he says, my little girl's dying. And the, and the Lord was moved with compassion. And he, he starts heading toward Jairus' uh, home. You know, we, we asked the question in that sermon, what happens when Jesus gets there too late? You know, and we found out the answer there was Jesus is never too late. He's always right on time. But boy, Jairus thought so. But, you know, Jairus, I don't know what his thinking was as they're headed that way and the crowds around him and suddenly he stops and he says, who touched me? Who touched me? And it's almost like we're surprised that he would stop when he was on his way to heal a 12-year-old girl. You would think, well, that girl's going to take priority. But you know, knowing what we know about the heart of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ for his people, why are we surprised? Did he stop when this woman who'd had a 12-year issue of blood had been outcast from her people and he, he stopped and he healed her on his way to ultimately raise from the dead this little 12-year-old girl? You know, in that glorious day, why are we ever really, you know, it's almost like we don't really know Jesus sometimes in our lives. Do you ever feel like, I can't bother him with that? I just, you know, I, this is just too much. I'm just, I, I prayed, I'm to... I'm done, you know. I've been praying about that. Why do you stop praying? Why, why do you ever get discouraged in, in, in taking your petition to Jesus? Because He is the, the Savior of His people. He is, the, he is our, uh, our beloved. He, he is the one of whom it said, I am His and He is mine. We are married to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, his, we are His bride. He is our bridegroom. There is nothing my wife cannot come to me about. I hope she never has the idea that, well, I can't bother Him with that because He doesn't care enough about... You know, it could be a situation in, in our earthly marriages where, where we, get the, we get cold and we get uh, uh, hard to deal with and we get to the point where we maybe aren't concerned like we should be as husbands. But beloved, God forbid it ever should be that way because our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, is always there, always available to us, always interested in our problems. And he's not being ugly to her here. <laughs> he's not. It might, you know, it might, 
It might look like she doesn't have a chance. I said this morning, we, it'd be easy for me if she, if she came to me and said, hey, I want to go to Jesus. If I was Peter or Andrew, good Jewish followers of Jesus, and she came to me and said, hey, I want to talk to your master. Well, you're not a Just go on. You don't have, you know, you're from the wrong side of the tracks. You don't have a chance. In fact, that's what they said. Send her away. But you know, the Bible is full of stories about people who we would pass over, but whom Jesus called whom Jesus touched. I wouldn't have touched the leper. In fact, it was forbidden under Jewish law to touch a leper. You would become unclean. Jesus embraced the leper. He touched him. He reached out and touched him. The Bible tells us that. In this very gospel, about the first encounter he had with a leper, he touched him. <laughs> you remember a woman at a well? Nobody... Wanted to be around her. She was there in the middle of the day. Probably because she didn't want to come at the normal time when all the other women came. Because they looked down on her so much. Been, been married five times. None of which, none of those marriages worked out. None of them, none of them took, so to speak. And then she's living with a guy at the moment. That's not the kind of woman any of us preachers want to go meet with, is it? We, we just, oh, we better, you know, that's just too much, too much trouble, too much going on in her life, too, too much history there, too much baggage, we would say. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He didn't, he didn't just happen to be there where she was. We're told in the second or third verse of chapter 4 of John, he must needs go through Samaria. He had an appointment with a woman at the well. You see, there was a woman at the well. There was, we mentioned Levi, the publican. What, what about you? What about me? I don't know about you, and I don't know your situation exactly, but I know mine, and I have no right to be standing here preaching to you tonight. I have no right. <clears throat> remember Jesus said children first you remember what we said that there is there is so much said in the Bible about approaching him in humility and with persistence okay well when he says the children first that means there's some seconds <laughs> Now, that's not what a pride-filled Pharisee would want to hear. He, he, would, he would want to say, oh, I'm entitled to the first course meal here. I'm entitled to the highest seat at the banquet. But this humble woman was undeterred by the fact that she was an outcast. She was from the wrong side of the tracks. And even when she went to Jesus, uh, she, she at first appeared to be rebuffed. You see, these weren't obstacles for her so much as opportunities. These were opportunities for her to persist in her faith. Beloved, sometimes when the Lord doesn't answer your prayer the way you want it answered, it's not, just a, it's not the Lord rejecting you. It's not the Lord even necessarily testing you, but it is a time of an opportunity for you to display your faith and keep coming back to Him. That's what this woman was doing. I don't know the reason that Jesus did all this, but he wasn't toying with her. I can tell you that. He doesn't do that. I believe that 
part of it was he was he was increasing her faith, but not just hers, the faith of the disciples. And see, it culminated, her, her persistence and her humility culminated in verse 28. She says, he says, it's not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. This morning we, we quoted from Psalm 84, but I want to turn there tonight. This woman of all the women, all the people in the Bible that I read about, as much as anybody displays for us the proper attitude of each one of us when it comes to the house of God. Psalm 84, verse 1, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. You know, in many ways, we're like this woman. We have such deep needs. They're not necessarily involving the need for physical healing, but beloved, I need spiritual healing on a daily basis. And, and her heart and her flesh was crying out for Jesus. Our heart and our flesh should be crying out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found a house. Not the, you know, if you see yourself as the mighty eagle, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to want the highest perch in the building. But if you see yourself as the little sparrow that you are, and the little swallow that you are no better than, then you're content to build a little mud nest just up in the corner. The swallow, uh, the sparrow hath found a house to swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will still be praising thee. Selah. That means they will still be praising thee, by the way, in the midst of racial unrest, in the midst of riots, in the midst of coronavirus, they will still be praising thee. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee and in whose heart are the ways of them. Who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord, o Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. Now listen to this. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. And what he means by that is one day in the house of God is better than a thousand days away from that house. Now here's the attitude that this young, sweet precious sister had it's the attitude that you and I ought to have I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness <laughs> now if you if you come to church and you say now look I need to be in the leadership I need to be the head of the deacon board I need to be the pastor of the church you don't have problems in the kingdom of God but if your attitude is I'll just stand at the back of the Room, and when somebody wants to come in, I'll make sure the door's open for them. You know, isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that our jobs? I've seen churches where it was like the doorkeepers were keeping you from coming in. Yeah. <laughs> they were holding the doors against you. They were guarding the door. Now, I understand we don't need to let the world into the church. 
Worldly things shouldn't come into the church. But the sheep of God that are lost out on the hills of the world, that door needs to be flung wide open. And, and if you're a doorkeeper in the house of God, that means you're not back there trying to keep them out. You're trying to let them in. You're saying, I just want to be sure. I'm not high up. I just want to be sure that when, when they come in, I welcome them. So you say, well, I'm not important to the church. I don't have a role here. I don't have an office. I don't hold position. You're very important to the church. You know, one of the main things people say about our church that, I, that I've been told many times that you all have the most welcoming group of people at your church, the most welcoming congregation we've ever been around. Well, guess what? If you're not here, you can't welcome if you're not here, you can't display that attitude. That's why it's important for you to be here. And that's why it's important for you to have that attitude. If you think you're high and mighty, then you might look back there and see someone come in and say, well, they don't look like they fit with our idea of what a church member ought to be. Well, I got news for you. They, if they stand at the back of the church and smite upon their breast and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. They fit in a whole lot better than the proud Pharisee that's standing up front saying, I'm glad I'm not like him. Amen. You see? <clears throat> a doorkeeper. And that's what this woman was. She, was. she had the right attitude for approaching Jesus. <laughs> I'm not sure what attitude Nicodemus had when he came to Jesus in John, the third chapter. I, I kind of tend to think it was a little bit prideful. You know, we've heard of you. Maybe not. Maybe he was sincerely seeking and, and humble. But, you know, he was high up in the leadership of the Sanhedrin. He, he was on the Sanhedrin. He was high up in the Jewish leadership in that day. And Jesus didn't mince words with him. He just jumped right in there and said, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus, before you understand any of this. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. You know what the problem in the world is today? It's the kingdom of Satan. That's the problem. The prince of the power of the air is running this world. And his minions are. Okay? And we're trying to educate and we're trying to social engineer people uh, who are neutral or innocent in their nature or whatever you want to call it. But the truth of the matter is, beloved, we're not neutral. We're not innocent. We are depraved by nature. We are dead in trespasses and sins unless the Lord births us again. That's the problem in the world today. Education is not going to fix it. Social engineering is not going to fix it. And, and need I even say that politics isn't going to fix it? You're talking to somebody who's in politics. I'm, I know, and that's, I engage in it. But let me tell you, I have, no, I have no misconceptions. We need to elect godly men and women to those positions. But politics will never be the salvation of this nation. Amen. If you think differently, go back and talk to Josiah when you get to heaven. Amen. Josiah was a good, godly king, and he enforced many wonderful reforms upon the people. But what happened the minute he died? It's like a spring. The people popped right back where they were. And, and it wasn't long after that that they were carried away captive. But notice, notice what happens. Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. Over in Matthew, he, he says this after her 
great statement of faith. He says in verse 28 of Matthew 15, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You see, Jesus gave her exactly what she needed. He, he answered her petition, her persistent petition, her humble, persistent petition. He gave her what she needed. You know, there's a reason that he tells us to ask of him and, and, and to seek and it's and it's our knock and it should be opened and to ask and it shall be given. There's a reason that we can go to him boldly to his throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. You know what that reason is? He loves us. He loves his children. He loved us so much that, that before the foundation of the world, he purposed to save us. He, he came in time to this world and in fact, he loved us so much that he is standing here in Mark 7 talking to one of us. He's talking to one of his little children. He's, he's verbally conversing with them. He's in their very physical presence. He deigned to leave the throne of God. He, he could have stayed there throughout eternity in perfect fellowship with his father. And instead he took on flesh and he became a man. And he came down here and he began to experience sin in a way the Godhead had never experienced sin. He, he didn't have sin within him, but he had sin all around him. And he experienced the effects of sin upon this body that he was in. He experienced the effects of sin uh, in the people that he healed. And he sighed deeply in his spirit from time to time. And he groaned in his spirit when he was facing the effects of sin at the grave of Nazareth of Lazarus. And he, uh, and he was uh, constantly being subjected to sin in a way that he would not have been subjected to it had he been seated on the right hand of the Father on high throughout this whole time. He didn't have to do this. I mean, he did because he purposed to, but he didn't, you know, in one sense, he didn't have to do this. He asked the question on the road to Emmaus of, uh, of those disciples. He says, ought not Christ to have suffered these things? And you know, the answer is he had to because he purposed to do it. And he wasn't going to change his purpose. But, but from a moral sense, from a, uh, an entitlement sense, he ought not have. He ought not to have had to. It's our fault, not his fault. And the reason we can ask of him and we know that the way is open to him today through the medium of prayer is because he loves us. He loves us. I am his and he is mine. My beloved is mine, you see. That's why. You know why he heard the cries of the bondage of the children of Israel in the day of Pharaoh. You know why he did? Because, you know, you can turn there. We mentioned it sometime a few weeks ago. You can turn back to Exodus chapter 2 sometime and you can read about it. You know why he heard their cries? You know why their sighs came up before him? Because of his covenant that he had. He didn't look back and remember all the good things they'd done. He didn't look back and remember all the opportunities that they had taken advantage of because they weren't a very uh, opportunity-taking people. <laughs> they tended to be murmuring and rejecting of him. But what he remembered was his covenant. 
What, what covenant are you talking about? The covenant that He made between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The covenant that said, where He, he said, Ask of Me to His Son. Ask of Me the heathen for Thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and the, the covenant where we read about it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 where it says, Whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. Whom He called, them He also justified. Whom He justified, them He also glorified. That's the covenant He remembered. That's what He did. He loved us before the foundation of the world. He tells us according as He chosen us in him uh, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him and love having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself and he says over there in the second chapter of Ephesians when he's talking about us being dead in sins you with the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins according as we walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. <clears throat> and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Then what? But you changed your minds. But you made the right choice. But you gave your heart to Jesus. No. But God. But God. For His great love wherewith He loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Him. By grace are you saved. And that not of yourselves. Through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. See, that's why we can take heart about this little Gentile woman who had such a great need. And that's why we know Jesus wasn't toying with her because He doesn't toy with His children. I, I want to leave you with this. You know, I said this this morning, but for those of you that weren't here, I'll, I'll repeat it. You know, the Jews thought that the Gentiles were dogs. They called them dogs many times. That, that Greek word is kuno for dogs. But there's another Greek word, kunarion, which is not an adult dog, but that's a little puppy dog. Little puppy dog. Knowing what you know about Jesus, can you guess which word he used? in this passage when he said it's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it under the dogs I, I can almost see the twinkle in his eye as he looks at this little woman that he clearly loves one of his children and he says you know I'm just sent to the house the lost sheep of the house of Israel and it's not right to take the children's food you know I'm sent to them first it's not right to take their bread and cast it to the to the little puppies under the table. <laughs> That's the picture here. See, Jesus never cast aspersions against any of His children. I can just see the twinkle in His eye as He's talking to her. As He's proving her, if you will. As He is building up her faith. And she says, yes, but you know, even the little puppy dogs <laughs> under the table eat of the children's crumbs. Oh, what a sweet, what a sweet little sister. What a wonderful, loving Savior. So you know what this teaches us, beloved? Take heart. Take heart. There's hope. Have faith. Trust Him. Notice she didn't say, when He said, the devil's gone out of that daughter, 
She didn't say, wait, wait a minute, how, how do I know? Can you come with me just in case? Can you go with me in case you have to do it again? She just left him and went to her house in faith and found the devil gone out and her daughter laid up on the bed. Beloved, bring your problem to God. Bring your petitions to Him. Don't be dissuaded by race or religion or politics or problems within your life. Don't even let your own sin dissuade you from coming to God. In fact, go to God with your sin and ask Him to help you with it. If you have sin prevailing in your life, take it to the Lord. You're not big enough to win that battle alone. But you know what? You don't have to fight that battle alone. Because if you're a child of God, if you've been born of the Spirit, the Lord is right there. Just, just like this. He may, he may appear to be busy somewhere else. He may appear to be asleep in the ship. He may not, you may not see Him there. He may, be a, he may appear to be taking too long in getting there. But beloved, as we have learned, when the Lord gets there too late, He's really not ever too late. When the Lord isn't there, hey, He'll walk on the water to get there. And He really is always there. When the Lord appears to be asleep in the ship, let me tell you, the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. You may think He is, but He's not. And by the way, He'll never sleep again because he's in heaven. <laughs> he did have to sleep when he was a man, but he doesn't have to sleep anymore. And when he appears to be uninterested, I promise you, beloved, God loves his people. You got a problem that's too small? I say you don't have a problem. I mean, what is a small problem? <laughs> you know? If you said, Lord, I need a universe, he could say, okay, I'll speak it into existence. That seems like a pretty big problem. It's a small problem with God. All the problems are small with God. He took care of our big problem. He took care of the sin that does so easily beset us. He put that away as only He could. Praise God. In those seconds, that second course meal in the house of God is better than the first course meal that the world has to offer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.